Good morning. Welcome again. We're going to continue this morning through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we are going to do 2 Samuel chapters 7 and 8. Uh, this is on page 259 if you're using one of the blue church Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, with a bit of contribution from chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, we call the big numbers on the page the chapters. The little numbers are called the verses. 2 Samuel 7. Keep your Bibles open. I'm not going to be able to read the whole thing, but I'll refer to uh, all of it, and so we'll be jumping around a bit. So keep your Bibles open. Second Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, once again, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word, not so that we can just learn some things, but so that we can be transformed in our minds, in our souls, in our bodies. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when we give somebody shocking news, we ask them if they're sitting down. In our text today, David receives shockingly good news from God. And in the middle of chapter 7, we read that the first thing he does after he hears about it is to go sit down in God's presence, where he then overflows with a prayer of gratitude. 
this is not the world's best sermon illust- uh, introduction because I'm not exactly sure if the reason that David is sitting is because he's shocked. Uh, it might actually have something to do with him taking the posture of somebody uh, who has finished his work, kind of like we do at the end of the day. But in any case, uh, sermon introduction's over now that you're paying attention. In any case, David is shocked. He is amazed. He is astounded at the good news. And the point of this chapter and this passage is that we too should be amazed by what God has promised to David. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible because in it, God is unveiling for David and for us a huge leap forward in his ancient plan to restore and to rescue the entire universe. God is going to raise up a king from David's lineage. As God's son, this king is going to build a house and a home for God's people to live with God forever in perfect peace. All the peace, all the prosperity, all the harmony that our world so tragically lacks and so desperately longs for, here we see that the God who made our world is telling us that he is certainly going to bring it about. And that the way he's going to do that is by building an eternal house for this man, David. But God announcing this wonderful plan is a response to a very different kind of plan. Uh, Not God wanting to build David a house, but instead it starts off with David wanting to build God a house. Uh, Look at verses 1 to 7 there in chapter 7, where you see David having this well-intentioned but ultimately wrong-headed plan to build God a house. Uh, The Lord has, we've seen as we've gone through 2 Samuel, the Lord giving all these victories to King David. Uh, His kingdom now is finally at peace. Last week we saw how David brought uh, the Ark of the Covenant into his new capital city. David has built in his capital city a luxurious palace. But then in verses 1 to 3, uh, we read that one day David and the prophet Nathan are relaxing by his new infinity pool. And David says to him, you know, this is a bit odd. I'm living up here in this swank palace and God is down there in that funky tent, the Costco special. Don't you think, he says to Nathan, don't you think God would be pretty excited to get an upgrade? I'm thinking something really impressive, a big temple to show how great our God is. He is the one true God after all. And so Nathan, the prophet, without skipping a beat, says, that's a great idea. God will love that. Go for it. But God has other ideas. In verse 4, we hear that in the evening, God comes to speak to Nathan. As a prophet, he's used to speaking God's word. But we see that the reality is that earlier in the day, by the infinity pool, he was not speaking God's word. He was speaking Nathan's word. It's a warning about not thinking that just because our motives are good, or just because it's so obvious to us that God might be pleased with something, It's a warning that we can't just assume that our plans are the same as God's plans. Even when you are God's anointed king, ruling over God's chosen people. You see, in David's world, it was expected that kings would build impressive temples in order to get their gods to secure their kingdoms. 
But even though that's what is normal back then, even though that's what everyone would have expected of David, you can see here that God is making it very clear that King David cannot just baptize his own desires with religious piety, even when he has a prophet who's giving him the thumbs up. Uh, If that's true for David, it's particularly true for modern-day politicians and their religious toadies. We're seeing again, once again, in the book of Samuel, how, like the rest of the Bible, it relativizes the importance of human government. It's not that it's nothing, but it's not everything. In David's world, the king was the king. The king made the law. You had to do everything and anything the king said. But the Bible uh, shows us, it pulls back the veil a bit for us on the way that human government can go so wrong, how often it's marred by its arrogant pretensions, how often it crushes the weak in the name of its utopian goals. It's important for us to remember, given that we, like David's world, are living in a world that so deeply idolizes political leaders and political institutions. But God says to David, would you build me a house? He says, who gave you the idea that I need a building? I never asked anybody for an upgrade. He reminds David that he's been quite content for hundreds of years to wander around with his people ever since he brought them up out of Egypt. And so God says to David, watch it. Don't think that you can domesticate me, that you can put me in a box, that you can make me settle down to fit with your purposes as well-intentioned as they might be. It is true that God will eventually bless the construction of a physical temple in Jerusalem. But he wants David to understand that he moves on his own timetable. He does things in his own ways. Even after the temple is built, God shocks the people of Israel by his willingness to abandon the temple, uh, to allow it to be destroyed, and then to wander off into exile with his people when they're once again without a home. The New Testament teaches that God is still with us today in all of our wanderings, our aimlessness, our uncertainty. He goes with his people. But it's understandable that David would want to build a temple for God because in the ancient Near East, like we've said, this was the norm. A king would receive some kind of help from his God and then the king would gratefully build him some really impressive temple and then the God would respond to that by helping the king a lot more. The God does something for you, you do something for him, he does a lot more for you. But when David approaches the one true God in this way, he says to David, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not how this works. Don't you remember, God says to David, don't you remember that our entire relationship in the past and in the present and in the future, don't you remember that our entire relationship is not about you paying me to do something for you, but it has always been and always will be about me taking the initiative to do everything for you. So it's not that God helps you and then I help God and then God helps me some more, but rather... It's this. God helps me, and then he helps me a lot more. Even though he doesn't need us, even though we don't deserve it. All you can do is accept it. That's what the Bible calls receiving God's grace. In verses 8 and 9, God reminds David of his past grace. Notice how God says that he did everything for him. David is not an active participant in any of this story of his life. God says to him, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I've been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
Now, yeah, obviously, of course, David was doing things. He was taking care of sheep. He was fighting battles. But God says, you need to remember that it was really me who was graciously blessing you and helping you. God raised up David from weakness and obscurity and made him great. Uh, God did not ask David for permission to do this. God did not wait for David to make something of himself. Uh, You might remember from the story way back in 1 Samuel that God purposefully rejected David's much stronger, much more impressive, much more handsome older brothers. And then later, God did not kick David to the curb when he sinned, which we've seen he's already done quite a bit. And we're going to see in a few weeks he's going to do a lot more. In verse 10, God shifts from his past grace to his future grace. First, he talks about his grace for his beloved people. God says, I'm going to make a home for them where they can live in safety and security with no more oppression, no more evil. Uh, So it's God picking up his original promises to Abraham and then Moses, uh, his promises through Moses to Israel. His promises about bringing his people into his place where they're going to live under his rule in his presence and so enjoy his blessing. And then in verse 11, God talks about his future grace, not just for his people, but also for David himself. God says, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And then this is the real kicker, the real climax of all this. God says in verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You think you're going to make me a house? Watch this, God says. I'll make you a house. God says, "Uh, you thought you were going to make me a physical temple. I'm not going to let you do that. The answer is no. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to, he's doing, it's a play on word. He says, instead of a building, I'm going to give you something much better. I'm going to give you a dynasty, a royal dynasty. God says, I'm going to build the house, and he places absolutely no conditions upon it. God's kingdom is a gift. In verses 12 to 16, God reiterates the gifted, irrevocable nature of this kingdom. Every other kingdom in human history has eventually crumbled. One day, the mighty American kingdom will be nothing but a dim memory kept alive through books and recordings and archaeology, maybe museums, maybe theme parks. But God says that this kingdom will be the only kingdom that will never end forever and ever and ever. Now, why? Why is this kingdom not going to end? First, God tells David that the kingdom is not going to end because it's not going to be shaken by death. Look at verse 12. He says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. David's going to die soon and his son and his son and his son and his son and his son. But God says that not even death is going to end this kingdom. On top of that, verse 13, David's kingdom is not going to be shaken by sin. Uh, Referring at one level to David's son Solomon, God acknowledges that Solomon is going to build a physical house. That's going to be the first Jerusalem temple. But God also says that when Solomon and his descendants like him, when they turn against God and his law in sin and apathy, he says, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to punish them, he says. But unlike Saul's kingdom... David's kingdom will always enjoy God's blessing. David's kingdom will always be able to claim God's blessing. The individual kings are going to fail, but this kingdom itself will never fail. Finally, throughout the verses, but especially in verse 16, God emphasizes that God's kingdom is not going to be shaken by time. It's not going to be shaken by death or by sin. Now, by time. 
It's going to last forever. The temple, of course, did not last. The obedience of David and his descendants at best was temporary and inconsistent. And so we see that God's promise of an eternal Davidic kingdom cannot depend on any mere temple or any mere king. When Israel came out of Egypt, God says that he adopted the people of Israel as his son. But with this promise to David, we now hear that the king is going to function as God's son. The sonship of the people is concentrating. It's becoming most focused and most bright in the person of the king himself. All of it, of course, is pointing us forward to Jesus. As a human, Jesus was directly descended from David. The, the first couple of gospel accounts in the New Testament are, are very careful to show us that, even though it seems boring to us today, as they give us this list of Jesus' genealogy. But the whole point is to show us that Jesus is directly descended from David, both through Mary and through his foster father, Joseph. As human, Jesus was descended directly from David, the son of David. As God, Jesus was present on earth among us. He came in Davidic flesh as God's eternal son. And so now truly and fully, Jesus is the son of God. This is what God's pointing us forward to ultimately when he says that the king will be to me a son and I will be to him a father. Before Jesus was crucified, standing in front of the great uh, Jerusalem temple, Jesus pointed to it and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He confused the people that were listening to him at the time, but later his disciples understood that what Jesus was talking about was his resurrection. Jesus is saying that I am the final, I am the ultimate temple. And so because of that, Jesus is the final and the ultimate temple builder. The New Testament says repeatedly that as the Davidic God-man, Jesus, as the temple, is building the temple. He's building the church. He's building us, often described throughout the Bible as his body, as his dwelling place, as his temple. If you believe in Jesus this morning, that means that you, it means that we corporately are God's very dwelling place on earth. So these promises to David, at one level, they are literally about David and his actual dominion and the borders of his kingdom and about his son Solomon and some architecture stuff that he was doing. Uh, but ultimately and finally... It's really about Jesus. He's the true and he's the final son of God. He's the builder of God's temple. He's the perfect keeper of God's law. And yet who on the cross was suffering the punishment we deserve. He was suffering the ultimate rod of men that God promised that he would bring against the kings who disobeyed him. In his conquest of death and of sin and of eternity, Jesus has brought David's kingdom to earth forever and ever, entirely as a gift, entirely at God's initiative. That's why when Jesus begins his ministry, he comes saying, the kingdom is here. Receive it. The kingdom has come in me. Time to accept it. Uh, as an echo of how God chose the lowly shepherd David, Jesus himself, of course, came from a very lowly background, but he also chose weak and lowly men as his disciples. Jesus spent much of his ministry focused on the weak and the lowly masses of the Galilean countryside, not in Jerusalem where all the action was happening, certainly not in Rome where all the power was happening, uh, in the countryside with the weak and with the lowly. Over and over and over again as Jesus is doing miracles throughout his ministry, the miracles are underscoring the fact that Jesus' kingdom is a powerful gift. The miracles show us most of all that Jesus is giving us a powerful gift, something you can only receive at his hand in all of our weakness and in all of our poverty. 
the New Testament never says that we must build or expand or grow the kingdom. I understand what people mean when they say that, but it's important for us to see that the Bible always places us in the passive position of receiving and entering and accepting the kingdom as God's gracious gift, past and present and future. It's wonderfully good news for a world that is so weary in its sin and in its suffering, for a world that is so mired in its conflict and its chaos. And so do you see this morning the goodness of this surprising and this unilateral plan, just like David did? In verses 18 and following, you see David responding to this plan with awestruck gratitude. He goes and he sits in the Costco tent before the ark, and he sits down amazed at what God has said and what God's going to do through him. Uh, in verse 18, you see the wonder of God's plan as David responds. David says, who am I? Who's my family that you would do something so great for me? You can see here that God's grace should leave us pinching ourselves with delight. We say, wow. I can't believe that God would do this. This is amazing. Who am I that I get to enjoy all this from God? In verse 19, David looks back on his entire life. Uh, we've seen, as we've gone through the life of David, his life was full of all kinds of amazing feats, so many narrow escapes, so many brushes with death. And David looks back on it all, and he says, that was nothing for you. That was so easy for you. Can't be compared to what you're now promising to do through me. David understands that the wonder of God's plan is rooted in the scope of God's plan. The scope of God's plan. He says, this is instruction for mankind. It's kind of a weird phrase, uh, but it's probably better translated as, this is the charter for humanity. This is the charter for humanity. You see, David understands that God's going to use his own family to restore and redeem the entire human family. And with it, the entire creation. So this is not some narrow concern of an obscure provincial God from the ancient Near East. This is not some narrow hobby of a kooky religious cult. But this is the one true God's plan for the entire universe. And you can see here that it's not a plan about how we can escape from this world into some kind of airy, fairy nirvana. But rather it's about God's plan to restore us in this world, our bodies, our relationships with each other, our relationship with him, to live in this world with no more suffering, no more sin, no more tears, no more terror, forever and ever and ever. This is the charter for humanity. God's going to carry it out through David. So everything broken and sad and wrong in our world and in our lives is going to resolve because of this promise to this man 3,000 years ago, not because of David himself, who himself uh, is kind of impressive, but is marred by all kinds of weakness and sin like we are. But rather, the ultimate reason that these promises are going to resolve uh, in our world, all of our suffering is going to resolve, is because the son of David, to whom the promises point. In the resurrection of Jesus, our world finds its only hope of redemption and restoration. It finds its new creation. God's plan is not just about God's king, but it's also about God's plan to bless his people. You can see that down in verses 23 and 24. David says, who is like your people Israel? So he starts out, wow, who, who am I that I get to enjoy this? 
And then later on, he gets to the real rub of the issue. He says, who is like your people? These ragtag bunch of slaves and sinners whom God has graciously and unilaterally rescued just because he wanted to. This group of people, not impressive in the eyes of the world, not important at all. These people whom God had freed from the misery of serving Egypt because he was freeing them for the joy of serving him. And verse 24 says that God established for himself his people so that they might be his people forever. So that he might be their God forever. You see, God does not want a kingdom on earth just for the sake of having a kingdom on earth. But he wants a kingdom on earth so that he can dwell with his people. So that they can dwell with him. So that we can delight in him because of all the goodness and all the peace and all the prosperity of the world that he's recreated and given to us. God did not create us. God did not redeem us because he was missing something or he was lacking something or he was lonely. He did all of it just as an overflow of his goodness. He just wants to bless his people and to show us how beautiful and how good he is. You can get a foreshadowing of this future and this eternal home in chapter 8 where we hear all about how David conquered all these terrifying enemies of God's people, about how David makes their home prosperous and beautiful, about how he administers justice and equity to all the people. No favoritism, uh, no backroom deals. David is treating the people fairly. He's protecting their rights. David's own reign is going to end up mostly as a disappointment largely because of his own sin. But here in chapter 8, you see the high watermark of David's kingdom. And so we're getting a glimpse of what Jesus has come to do in our world for us. So you have the wonder of God's plan as David is praying. You have the scope of God's plan. And then you have wonderfully the certainty of God's plan. Uh, David's prayer, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing. David's prayer ends with a very confident request, uh, which actually that's probably a too mild of a way to put it. Uh, You actually see David demanding that God do what he's promised. You see that in verse 25. Listen to how demanding he is. He's like a little kid here. The Bible teaches us to pray like this. It's amazing. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, And concerning his house, do as you have spoken. Uh, We're praying the same thing every week when we pray, thy kingdom come. We're demanding, humbly, respectfully of course, but we are demanding that God do what he's promised. And he invites us to do so. He invites us to be confident, to expect us to do what he wants. To expect him to do what he says he's going to do. Over and over and over again in these verses, David says to God, you have spoken You have promised. He says to God, your words are true. God never lies. God cannot lie. And so David prays with all this confidence on the basis of God's promises, just like we can and we should. God is going to restore this world for the sake of his people as they live under the rule of his king, the son of David and the son of God. Death and sin and time cannot stop God's kingdom because the crucified and the risen And the ascended King Jesus is ruling over them all. 
And so be encouraged. Whatever's going on in your life this week, however uh, stressed out you are about the world and how messed up it is, be encouraged. Be grateful and be confident in God's wonderful plan for you and for us and for this universe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you with David for your plan. Uh, Not just wishful thinking, uh, not just Pollyanna rose-tinted glasses from heaven, but that because you've spoken about doing this, you are going to do it. You can't lie. Uh, Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us for the ways that we don't trust you, that we don't believe that you really want to do this in our lives and in this world. Uh, But as we wait, and it's so hard to wait, as we wait, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to receive uh, your kingdom and this world as the gifts that they are. Help us to always live by dependence upon you, knowing that you have given us everything in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.